Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Thankful that the Lord has brought us back together again this week. Now, let me invite you to join me in your Bibles in the book of John, chapter 3, and you can find verse 22. We'll be looking carefully together this morning at John 3, 22 to 30. And one of the things emphasized in our passage this morning is that we're seeing a man who is expected to wrestle with discontentment. I want to put it that way. Uh, Maybe that's not the way that we typically think of what we're about to read. Uh, But I hope that we can try this morning to think about this account, this interaction between John the Baptist and his disciples, uh, more in those terms, maybe a little differently than we're accustomed to. Uh, We will see here in just a moment when we read, his disciples are upset, and they assume that he is too. In other words, his response to them is a surprise. We're supposed to notice that. If we don't notice that, there's a question that we won't ask uh, that perhaps is a really important question for us this morning. The question I want us to think about is why? Why was... John the Baptist not upset in the situation that we're about to read. As we answer that by walking through this interaction between him and his disciples, it's going to show us a lot about some related ideas as well. Ideas like, uh, as are described in the phrase, your lot in life. Your lot in life, or maybe your place. What do, you, what do you think and feel when you hear this statement? Know your place. Is it just me, or is that a statement that immediately riles us up a little bit? Uh, know your place. I'll show you what my place is. Thank you very much. Maybe there's that sort of an instinctive reaction that we can feel. As we talk about that whole notion of having a place or a lot, here is a man who is about to self-consciously drift from power, respect, renown, into the shadows. And he knows it. And because of the realities he's about to describe, he rejoices in it. He is able to rejoice in what he sees coming. I think we see here a man who has learned the secret of contentment. It's the kind of secret that apparently Paul had learned as well at a point. We read, Paul says in Philippians 4, maybe you remember this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, that's interesting, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These are men that the scriptures are holding out to us who have learned how to be truly content in all situations. They're sinners. He's not claiming to to be reaching a place where he now does this perfectly. But the point is that he has come to understand something. We could put the wording together with what we've been describing already. They have learned how to rejoice with the lot in life that God has given them. And I want to suggest from our passage this morning that what John the Baptist has learned 
that has brought him to this place is that God, in fact, reigns supremely. But more than that, he has learned to love it. He's learned to love that God reigns supremely. I think we'll see that that is what produces the humble contentment that we read about this morning. And those are the sorts of operative words that are being held out to us in a passage like this. Words like humility and contentment. Let me ask you, is it timely for us this morning to be faced with such things? Is contentment a trait that we're all just brimming with in our time? God's word would speak to us this morning. So let me read for us John 3, verses 22 to 30 from the English Standard Version. And let me invite you, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are just three things that we need to see this morning as we walk through this account. And let me preview them for you if you're taking notes. Verses 22 to 26, we see an expectation of jealousy. Verses 27 to 28 and 29 to 30 are the other two. I was feeling maybe a bit creative when I wrote these point titles, but I hope it's helpful. 27 and 28, I think we see what we could call a theology of placement. And 29 and 30, what we see is what we could call the doctrine of exit stage right. The doctrine of exit stage right. So let's start with 22 to 26. Uh, a, an expectation of jealousy. Maybe you could hear as we read that how verses 22 to 24 were very much seen set up for what's starting in verse 25. So what we see in those first three verses is this. Jesus and his disciples have now left Jerusalem. They've gone out into the countryside, the Judean countryside, probably north of Jerusalem. Uh, and there it says that Jesus was doing two things. Number one, he was spending time with his disciples. It states that actually very explicitly in the way that it words it. They were out there to have time together where he is teaching them, he's fellowshipping with them. It's a time of growing in relationship between, between them uh, and being taught. 
But as that's happening, what else is happening is people are coming out to them in order to be baptized. Verse 23 says that at the same time as that, John the Baptist is continuing in his ministry of baptism and repentance. And now, verse 25 makes a statement in the midst of that description that can seem a little bit random. It says that the conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples started because there had been a discussion between some of John's disciples and a Jew, it says. Some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And the gospel writer here doesn't give any explanation as to the relationship between the two conversations. Why? Do they start discussing purification and then come to John the Baptist with this report, this irritated report about what Jesus is doing in baptism? He doesn't explicitly tell us how these are connected. Uh, and and we, we do well to be cautious in speculating. I did read a suggestion that seems very reasonable to me, and I want to share this with you. This is from J.C. Ryle. See if you, if you uh, notice the points that he's drawing us to in the details. Ryle said this, it seems probable that it was a dispute between the unbelieving Jews and the disciples of John the Baptist about the comparative value of the two baptisms which were being administered in Judea, John's and Christ's. Which was the most purifying? Which was the most valuable of the two? The Jews probably taunted John's disciples with the decline of their master's popularity. John's disciples, in ignorant zeal and heat for their master, probably contended that no new teacher's baptism could possibly be more purifying and valuable than their own master. So if he's right about that, the scene that is set up in these first few verses looks like this. There's now not one baptizer in the wilderness, but two. And they're not all that far apart from each other. And the Jews are very much aware of both of them. And John 4.1 is going to add to this that by this point, more people are going to Jesus than going to John to be baptized. This is the scene set up that we have. And in that scene, then, it's not hard to understand how John the Baptist's disciples are feeling when they come to him in verse 26. They are jealous. They're jealous for their master, John the Baptist. And given what they say to him, they seem to expect John to have a similar response. Look at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. This is an expression of unhappiness. They're expecting some sort of unhappiness. A jealousy and maybe in their mind, a godly jealousy, because John the Baptist's role is very significant, isn't it? His role of being called out to baptize uh, is a significant one. Is it being usurped by Jesus? Is this the kind of outrage that we should feel? And he responds to his disciples, and what they get from him in response is a theology lesson. It's what they get from him. Verses 27 and 28 give us a theology of placement. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. His response entails one thing fundamentally, and that is the acknowledgement that God's, it is God who has the authority in assigning us our place in life. Now, it's interesting how it's put here in verse 27. It's a statement of fact. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What's interesting about that statement is that that applies to John in his earthly ministry and to Jesus in his earthly ministry. It applies to both of them. Jesus will say in just a few chapters in John 5, 30, I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus in his earthly ministry as a man has been sent from God for a particular role that he has been called to. And so has John the Baptist. All of it operates under the free authority of God to assign us our place. The role that we're given, the obscurity of it, the prominence of it, the impact that it will have. John the Baptist says, all we can receive is that which we have been given. There are two passages of scripture that come to my mind here as he says this. One is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul asks the question, what do you have that you have not received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's giving that as a blanket statement as to abilities, as to particular roles within, uh, in that case, within, the, within a congregation, uh, or within a family, within a community. What do you have that you have not received from the hand of God? And the answer is so obvious that it needs no verbal response. The answer is, there is nothing that I have that I have not been given. 1 Corinthians 4.7 comes to my mind. The other is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We looked at that passage, I think, last year. COVID has messed up all of my sense of time, so maybe it was two years ago. But what we saw in Psalm 127 is that that statement, let me read it again, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, we saw that that statement is not a statement of condemnation of whatever the labor is. It's a statement of acknowledgement that the outcomes of our efforts are dependent on the Lord. The prime builder in any work I'm engaged in is God. By his plan, it will succeed or it will fail. And there's something actually very freeing in understanding that. And this just helps us in so many different ways. And for the next few minutes, I want to lead us to reflect on some of those ways before we move on. Well, one of the things that we need this reality that John the Baptist is giving us to protect us from is from a sinful sectarianism. That's what's most immediately on display in John the Baptist's words as he is expected to put himself up against what God is doing through the ministry of, of Christ, and he refuses to do that. It reminds us that God is not just building our church. He is building his church. He's building his church in Albania. He's building his church across the globe, and we want that, don't we? He's building his church in Amarillo, Texas, and it extends far beyond the walls of this building, and we want that. 
It's the reason behind some of our efforts, for example, what we did this morning, to pray intentionally for Christian brothers and sisters in different countries on a monthly basis. This encourages us to keep that bigger perspective about what God is doing. It also, though, reinforces to us that God is at work apart from us. He doesn't need us, does he? The work that he would call us to and allow us to participate in, in furthering his kingdom, it's meaningful work. It's eternal, eternally significant work. And the right and ability to work in that is purely gracious. God is giving us great grace and honor by allowing us to play a part in what he is doing. But he does not need any one of us. And what that means is that we must be content and satisfied to do what he has given to us to do with all the vigor and effort and energy that we can muster. This is so significant. John the Baptist was able to set his mind to the task that he was given, to prepare the way for the Lord, the task of successfully forerunning, if that's a verb, successfully forerunning, because he knew what he was called to and what he was not called to. We can benefit from that both corporately and individually. Corporately, as a church body, we are called to serve, admonish, support one another and the ministries of this church. We're to strive for faithfulness and God's glory to shine out in a pocket of Amarillo, Texas, because this is where he has brought us and this is what he has tasked us to do. The leadership of this church is not tasked to shepherd every Christian across the country. It's not called to solve world hunger. It's called to feed the sheep of Christ that are represented in their flock. There are a lot of pastors right now because of the reach capability we have by the technology we've been given. And that's a blessing from God and much good comes from that. But there are pastors out there that, sh that are shepherding for all intents and purposes a general flock across the nation of believers whom they have never met while the sheep in their own congregation get to live with a pastor that does not have time to know them and minister to them. I need the protection of this kind of reminder. The elders of this church need this protection. We as a body, we need John's example of knowing his God-given purpose. So it, it affects us, it protects us corporately, it does so individually as well. Here's what this means for you and for me as individual believers. It means that you and I are now set free to know what faithfulness looks like for someone in your, here it is, lot in life. And in my lot in life, we're set free to know what faithfulness looks like for me and to content ourselves with doing those things and doing them well, doing them to the glory of God. Now, it's the Lord's to expand our influence, to expand our role that he would call us to, this way or that. He does it all the time. He may create a desire, open a door, reveal a need that I can meet in a way that widens my individual calling at points. He does that all the time. But we ought to see in John the Baptist's example here that we do, in fact, have a lane of some sort. Every problem is not one of my problems. 
that God will hold me accountable for. There are many believers whose consciences are weighed down by things that God has not charged them toward. They are weighed down with things that they are not doing that are good things. And some of that conscience conviction is from the Holy Spirit, and we need to repent and be vibrantly obedient. But some of it, what we need are brothers and sisters to come along and love and say, Sister, God has not called you to that. He, ha- he-, he works beyond just through you. He doesn't need you. We need to be reminded of all of these things. There is so much that the world needs, and if I believe that it's all in my lane, there is no hope for me but to be completely crippled with guilt that God has not given. Last thing on this point before we move on, what we're seeing in John the Baptist is an acknowledgement of placement into his role by God. It is God's prerogative to assign us the roles that we are to play. If he ordained that I be born a citizen of the United States, he has tasked me then to be a good one. If he ordained that I become married, he has tasked me to love my spouse, to serve my spouse in the ways that he has assigned to my role in Scripture. If he ordained that at this moment in my life I be an underage child, he has tasked me to fulfill that role in the ways that he has assigned in Scripture. In other words, he's not given us our roles and then left us to figure out what it looks like to do that obediently. He has not put us into a world full of roles with blank job description sheets for us to fill out as we think best. And I thank God for that. There are a certain couple of individuals in the Old Testament who tried to worship God as if worship of God was a role with a blank job description sheet. And it didn't go so well for them. So as we seek contentment and faithfulness in the roles that he has given, we have to remember that faithfulness looks like living out those roles according to his command. There is no role he has asked me to play that he has not also provided me with a job description sheet. He has told me what I need to know in order to obey him faithfully. God's word has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And that bears itself out even in the particular roles he's called us to play in our lives. Now he bears that out, moving into verse 29, with what really is a beautiful image and a perfect analogy. Analogies can frustrate me. I like using analogies. What frustrates me is that my, my efforts at coming up with analogies sometimes, there's always a limit to where the analogy can go, and sometimes I wind up confusing an issue more than clarifying one. I'm thankful when we find inspired by God analogies. Uh, that's very encouraging. That's what we have in verses 29 and 30 as John the Baptist gives this picture. And this is where I tried to creatively say, I hope I'll, I'll explain why I say it this way, that what we're finding in these two verses is something of a doctrine of exit stage right. Look at verse 29. He portrays what he's saying to them in this way. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, 
rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'll give you the cliff notes on this analogy. Uh, Jesus is the groom, or the bridegroom, as it's said here. Jesus is the groom. God's people are the bride. And John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom in this picture. He's the friend of the bridegroom is the best man. Uh, the best man in their, in their culture had huge responsibilities for the wedding celebration. Uh, and it all culminated when everything had gone right and the groom arrived at the house of the bride and collected his bride. That was the goal of the best man, that it come successfully to that moment. And when the groom arrived, all eyes turned to him and the best man rejoiced in drifting off stage right. That's exactly what John is rejoicing about. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What is it that's just been happening that has produced the completion of his joy? Now, when he wakes up in the morning and goes out to fulfill his ministry, now, Everyone is going to Jesus. It's what he's wanted. It's what he's here for. It's the whole purpose that he has been ministering to, and it's happening. This joy of mine, therefore, is now complete. He has come. And all I want is for him to increase. So out I will go specifically to allow others' attention to be where my attention has been, which is on Him, on the Messiah, on the Christ. I mentioned J.C. Ryle a moment ago. Let me read something else that he said here. This is, Ryle is not someone known for dramatic speech and overstatement. Listen to how he starts this. Speaking about what John the Baptist just said, he says, A frame of mind like this, a frame of mind like this is the highest degree of grace to which mortal man can attain. I'm going to read that again. And then continue with this quote. A frame of mind like this is the highest degree of grace to which mortal man can attain. The greatest saint in the sight of God is the man who is most thoroughly, 1 Peter 5, 5, clothed with humility. No man ever was so praised by Christ as the very man who says here, I must decrease. And when he speaks about Jesus' high praise for this man, he's referring to places like Matthew 11, 11, where Jesus will say, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's the kind of praise that, G that Jesus gives to this forerunner. I want us to think about how that frame of mind that we're seeing here has set John free to pursue faithfulness. Because it applies immediately to you and to me as we seek to pursue faithfulness. And I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to risk sounding hopelessly naive. Uh, can I suggest to you that this might just be, 
in so many situations that we face. This might be the missing first step to a simple and peaceful life. He must increase. I must decrease. How to handle raising children. I just want Christ to increase. How to handle aging parents. I just want Christ to increase. How to handle being an aged parent. I just want Christ to increase. How to handle marital strife. I just want Christ to increase. How to handle unforgiveness. I just want Christ to increase. Now the qualification I could put in that maybe makes it sound not so naive is I hope a matter of course. Having that desire that Christ would increase obviously doesn't resolve the issues in those situations right at the moment, does it? Uh, it doesn't erase past pains. It doesn't do any of those things automatically by saying such a thing, but the protection that it brings is that it allows, it allows me to face all of those scenarios from a place where I am not center stage. I'm just convinced that so much of the complications come not from the details of the situations themselves, but from the simple fact that I'm viewing all of it from the center of the stage. That's the complicating factor that cuts the legs out of repentance, restoration, growth from the beginning. I pray that you confess with me this morning, I am not here for myself. You do not exist for yourself. And when you place yourself in center stage, you become incapable of seeing anything with the right frame of mind. There's a place where C.S. Lewis writes about pride and humility. One of the things he emphasized was how strong the connection is between humility and get this, this is not maybe an expected connection between humility and cheerfulness. This is what he wrote. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. I love that word, smarmy. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He's been accused of being simplistic. I think that's probably fair, and I don't agree with everything C.S. Lewis says by a long shot, but do you get the sense from our passage this morning that John the Baptist even is surprised at his disciples' jealousy? It had not occurred to him that that would be a response to the increase of, of Jesus. 
Is it clear to us from Scripture that we do not belong in the center stage of our lives? That we are not the proper inhabitants of that space? I pray and trust that it is clear. It's not hard to find on the pages of Scripture, is it? That being so, do you know what you call someone who is at the center stage of their life? Unhappy. They're thrusting themselves into a place that God has not ordained them to be. He has not called them to live from there. He has not blessed a life lived in the center stage of my life. The happy people are the ones who have received the grace of proper perspective and who have wisely and willingly slipped off to stage right. As we move toward closing this morning, I want to share uh, a summary statement that I read this week pertaining to our text. I think it was very well written. What do you think about this as a summary of what we've read in John chapter 3 this morning? For John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else would simply be covetousness by another name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the excellent ministry God had given him. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would, in that instance, betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but the worst form of perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. End quote. I think it's a good ending image for us here as he speaks about the arrogance of wanting to be God. He's speaking about idolatry, isn't he? We can say that unhappiness is only to be expected in such a case if the Bible's teaching about idolatry is faithful and true. The Bible warns us that those who worship idols wind up becoming like them. And in that context, the idea is one of profound uselessness, futility. This is a carved thing. It can't move on its own. It can't hear anything. The one who worships it winds up becoming like it. If I was not meant to be center stage and I try to insist on it in my life, I have become an idolater, and life as an idolater will never find satisfaction. All it will find is futility and disillusionment. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, Psalm 32.10 tells us. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. May God help us to live our lives by faith in the Son of God and in joyful insistence upon His center stagedness in our lives, His proper place of center stage. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning. We thank you for rescuing us in your mercy from our idolatry. We as your people, we are your people because before time began, you declared that you would pardon your own enemies. 
And your son Jesus declared that he would take their iniquities onto himself. How could we receive so great a salvation and continue to want to be at the center of our own lives? But Father, we do confess that we often still do. Even as your people, we confess it freely. What can we hide from your sight? I pray this morning, Father, that you would use the power of your word so that many of your children who entered the room this morning in center stage will exit the room having joyfully exited stage right. And as we do that by the work of your spirit, Father, as we respond in obedience, we do so thanking and praising the spirit's work in us. All of it is of you by means of your spirit and through the work accomplished by your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.